Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's a stunning, perhaps unprecedented decision that puts Donald Trump's business empire at risk of dissolution and strips control of key properties from the former president. Judge Arthur and Gorin ruled that Trump repeatedly committed fraud by inflating the value of his assets by billions of dollars on financial records submitted to banks and insurers. He wrote scathingly about Trump's defenses, saying they were fantasy, not reality. The documents do not say what they say. There is no such thing as objective value. Essentially, the court should not believe its own eyes. Even quoting a famous line from the Marx Brothers movie, I saw you with my own eyes. Well, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? The judge concluded by saying that New York Attorney General Letitia James is now entitled to a court order dissolving any certificates issued to Trump's LLCs, putting his ability to continue operating his sprawling Manhattan-based company at risk. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at Carter in English. Would you say this decision is unprecedented, rare, uncommon? How would you describe it? It certainly is a rare decision. There is not a lot of history in New York State of a judge actually dissolving a company under these circumstances. Usually companies simply die in bankruptcy cases. So this is something where there is not a lot of precedent, and it has spawned a lot of confusion, not only by people who are looking at this case from the outside, but even by the lawyers who are involved in the case. There are a lot of questions as to exactly how the court is going to try to implement this decision. Let's talk about the substance of the decision. Tell us why the judge decided that Trump had committed fraud. The essence of the judge's decision is that Donald Trump and his two oldest sons and his businesses orchestrated what the judge called a persistent and repeated fraud in which they vastly exaggerated the extent of the former president's wealth to procure favorable loans. And they did that in order to try to benefit the financially these companies and get these very favorable loans based upon collateral that the judge found was highly inflated. Trump's penthouse in Manhattan, that's been used as an example of the exaggeration or inflation. In that case, the judge found that former President Trump had engaged in fraud by repeatedly claiming that his penthouse at Trump Tower, which according to most records is slightly under 11,000 square feet, according to the judge, former President Trump and his businesses would assert that the apartment is nearly three times bigger than it was in reality. The judge said that Trump's annual statements of financial condition used this false square footage to inflate its net worth by as much as $207 million. In 2012, when Trump valued the penthouse at a staggering $180 million, according to the judge, no apartment sold in New York City had ever approached that price. And the judge essentially said 
that while there may be some subjectivity in terms of evaluating the square footage and the value of an apartment, this was on an order of magnitude that in his mind showed a clear attempt to simply inflate numbers and a knowing violation of the law. And the judge found that former President Trump had fraudulently inflated the value of this apartment to a staggering degree. The judge's tone was scathing. He wrote at one point, in defendant's world, rent-regulated apartments are worth the same as unregulated apartments. Restricted land is worth the same as unrestricted land. Restrictions can evaporate into thin air. And then he said, that is a fantasy world, not the real world. Well, the judge was clearly incensed by the conduct here and did go through numerous examples of where he thought that the conduct was simply not tethered to reality. He even went so far as to sanction the lawyers for making some arguments on behalf of former President Trump on the Trump Organization, arguments that he said had already been discredited and were simply frivolous. So the judge clearly was not at all accepting of the defenses that were being put forward by the Trump Organization and wrote a very, very aggressive decision here going through in great detail examples of what he felt was conduct that was clearly fraudulent. Bob, that $7,500 sanction for Trump's lawyers for making arguments he'd previously rejected, I mean, don't lawyers repeat arguments that have lost in court all the time? Yeah, that is a bit of an unusual ruling. Usually judges do give defense lawyers latitude to make arguments, which they do repeatedly. Sometimes if a lawyer finds that they make an argument that's unsuccessful, they try to make it in a slightly different way to give the judge another opportunity to perhaps rule differently. So to sanction them for making an argument simply on the basis that they had previously made it is something that you do not see very often. What was the defense? The heart of the defense by the Trump Organization and by former President Trump's lawyers was that the banks in question, including Deutsche Bank in this case, these are the banks that made the loans allegedly based upon these inflated valuations of the collateral. The defense argued that these banks were not defrauded at all because all of the loans were ultimately repaid and the banks, in fact, made quite a bit of money on those loans. The judge did not buy that argument saying that it's not fair to suggest that no harm had been done to these banks when they loaned money to the Trump Organization. The judge pointed out that the first principle of loan accounting is that as the risk rises, so do the interest rates. So essentially what the judge was saying is that while in this case the loans were repaid and the banks, in fact, did make money on loaning money to the Trump Organization, had they known what the real value of the collateral was, they would have raised the interest rates and the banks would have made even more money. So that's where they were victimized here. In the judge's eyes, the banks were misled in order to make a loan at a lower rate than they should have made it if the true value of the collateral were known to them at the time that the loan was extended to the Trump organization. A lawyer for Trump, Christopher Kyes, said that he would likely appeal the decision, that's expected, which he called outrageous and completely disconnected from the facts and governing law. He said the judge ignored an earlier appeals court ruling and also ignored basic legal accounting and business principles. Do you think they have a good chance on appeal? Well, this is an aggressive decision, so it's going to be interesting to see what the appeals court does. One thing we can know for sure that once they file this appeal, it will likely stay the judge's ruling, which means that nothing will really be done for quite a while. It could be even years while the appeals court takes this decision up. 
In the meantime, the judge's decision does require the appointment of a receiver, so we'll see whether that proceeds even while the appeal is pending. So describe the remedy that the judge has ordered or the punishment. I'm not sure what we call it. Well, the judge's sweeping decision ordered that several of Trump's businesses be dissolved, and he ordered that a receiver be appointed to help in the dissolution of these entities. A lot of the decision is not entirely clear because the Trump organization itself is really just a shell organization, and it's composed of about 500 various LLCs, all holding different properties and serving different purposes. And so exactly what the impact of the judge's ruling on these various LLCs is unclear. The Trump organization's lawyers, for example, raised the fact that former President Trump's two sons, Donald Jr. and Eric, live in homes which are in fact owned by these LLCs. And so the question was, do they have to be removed from the homes? Do those homes have to be liquidated? They also asked whether Mr. Trump would have to sell assets including Trump Tower and 40 Wall Street, which is a downtown commercial property, or whether those properties could be managed by an independent receiver rather than being dissolved and have to be sold. So there's lots of unanswered questions here as to how this order will be implemented. And even the judge acknowledged that he was not entirely certain as to how his order would be implemented and wanted to take more time in order to evaluate the implementation of his own order. Doesn't that point to a successful issue on appeal for Trump if the judge himself, if this order is so novel that the judge himself doesn't know how it's going to be implemented, that the lawyers are confused. There are more questions here than answers. Yeah, there are a lot of unanswered questions. I mean, I think it's clear from the judge's ruling that he is not intending or ordering that Mr. Trump's company be dissolved completely. But what it does do is it affects these LLCs. And by taking away the business certificates, it'll make it impossible for those various LLCs to operate which ultimately can have a crippling effect on the Trump organization. So this is a very significant decision. It's highly controversial. It's going up on appeal, and we'll have to see what the appeals court does here. I think there is certainly a possibility that the appeals court may overturn this decision just because it's so unprecedented and because the effects of this decision are so sweeping on a major organization like the Trump organization, which employs hundreds of people and holds millions and millions of dollars in real estate not only in New York State, but also around the world. Apparently, trial is starting next week. What's left to try? The essence of the judge's decision was that no trial was needed to determine that the Trump organization had fraudulently secured favorable terms on loans and insurance deals. But what exactly is left for the trial is not entirely clear. Even the state's lawyers had not worked out what was needed to go to trial at this point. But what we do know is that the judge will have to determine the extent of the fine he's going to order. The attorney general has asked for as much as $250 million. The judge could also decide at trial whether to bar the former president and his sons from running a business in the state ever again. Those seem to be the issues that are remaining, but that will have to be worked out by the state lawyers, the defense, and the judge. Putting aside the financial consequences of this decision for Trump, This attacks his persona, his brand, you know, being the billionaire real estate magnet. It's what he's all about. In pretrial hearings before this ruling, one of former President Trump's lawyers told the judge that former President Trump is an investment genius and probably one of the most successful real estate developers in the country. 
clearly this judge disagreed and actually said that he's a genius only in a fantasy world. So one of the things that's really at issue here is the Trump brand, is the perception of the Trump organization, and the question of whether it is really one of the great successful real estate empires in Manhattan and even in the United States and around the world, or whether it was built on a basis of fraud and fraudulent statements. And in fact, as the judge said, the empire is really simply a fantasy based upon false information that was provided to give favorable loans to which the Trump organization was ultimately not entitled. It's also interesting that everyone's been paying attention to the criminal cases against Trump, but significant punishment was meted out here in a civil case. In the array of criminal and civil charges that former President Trump is facing, this is the first actual penalty that's been imposed upon him. And now we'll have to see whether it actually stands up on appeal. And we'll see what happens at the trial next week. Thanks so much, Bob. That's former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at Carter & English. Coming up next, Elon Musk's many lawsuits. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Elon Musk's leadership at Twitter and Tesla is the subject of three major face-offs coming up in the Delaware Chancery Court next month. It's been a year since Musk, after months of courtroom and social media drama, purchased Twitter, now renamed as X, for $44 billion. That deal allowed him to avoid a trial in the country's premier venue for corporate litigation. But October will be a busy month for Musk in that Delaware court. He'll face suits from a stockholder and pension funds questioning his lavish Tesla pay package and further legal fallout from his Twitter buy. Joining me to sort it all out is business law expert Eric Talley, a professor at Columbia Law School. Let's talk first about his record-breaking pay package of $55 billion. Yeah, that's good work if you can get it, isn't Uh, it? I'm going to conjecture, June, that if either you or I had a $55 billion pay package, this call wouldn't be happening right now. You are definitely right on that one. So, yeah, this is an interesting case. It's a case that was brought years and years ago and was, you know, essentially taken over by uh, Chancellor McCormick. Uh, It ended up in a hearing some months ago. There definitely is a doctrine out there about, you know, fiduciary duties and whether exorbitant pay packages have the effect of breaching fiduciary duties. And this is sort of within that cluster of cases. The hard part about this is that, you know, in many respects, Elon Musk's compensation package, as it was fashioned back in, you know, 2017 or whatever, it was a lottery ticket. And who knew whether that lottery ticket was going to pay off and by how much it paid off. And, you know, he essentially did the billionaire's version of hitting the Powerball on this lottery ticket. It paid off almost to its maximal amount. And, you know, I think part of the issue in the case and probably what's going to feed into the opinion is, you know, to what extent should we or uh, should we not use that sort of, you know, 2020 hindsight 
to try to get a sense of whether everyone knew that this was going to be a you know a Powerball ticket that paid off, or it really just turned out that you know the fortunes of Tesla outshine just about any conceivable picture that anyone would have painted at the time. Musk agreed to a lower fixed component of his salary for this lottery ticket version, and it paid off. That's clearly the argument that Musk is going to make. That in fact. Incentive contracts are there for a reason. This happened to hit the Powerball lottery, but at the time, there was no reason to expect that it would. Does it even factor in that they claim he's essentially a part-time leader with other companies to run, strengthened by the fact that he seems to be spending a lot of time at X? He kind of has to now, right? Because that's a particularly thorny situation he's in, having closed that deal. Here's the interesting thing about this compensation litigation or dispute, is that there were have effectively been two defenses that Tesla has made to try to justify this package. One is the lottery ticket version, right? That we didn't know at the time whether this was going to you know, pay off big or not pay off at all. And if it went the other direction, then Musk ends up walking away with a pretty minuscule salary. So that's one part of it. The other part of it, though, Tesla's argument is that they kind of, the board had to give him a high-powered incentive contract to keep his attention because he's sort of as distractible as a six-month-old Labrador puppy. And if you don't keep his attention on a really shiny, bouncing ball, then he's going to run off and do other things. Well, they gave him that compensation contract. It was a big one. He ended up running off and getting distracted by SpaceX and Twitter and the boring company and so forth. I guess I'm trying to figure out which way that cost. Does that mean that they really should have given him a bigger package to keep his attention on things or not. So it's hard to tell exactly which way that cuts. The fact that he is so distractible almost feeds into the argument that it would make sense to have a high-powered incentive contract to keep his eyes focused on the fortunes of Tesla and not to get too, you know, waylaid by other, you know, shiny lights and bouncing balls. How much does Musk's testimony during that November 2022 trial that he played no part in the board's decision? So is the independence of the board in coming to this decision important? Yeah, it's a big deal. It's it's kind of an interesting uh, situation right now with Twitter because just last year, a totally different case involved Tesla and its decision to purchase a very struggling solar energy company called Solar City. That case ended up um, resulting in an Elon Musk win, but it did so in an odd way. The judge in that case you know, everyone sort of expected the judge in that case was going to have to decide whether he was going to declare that Elon Musk was a controlling shareholder of Tesla. And if that was true, and he only owns, owns about 21, 22 percent of the, the stock or did at the time, if that is true, that he's deemed to be, you know, a sufficiently large stockholder, that he's a controller, that puts a larger onus of fiduciary obligation on him. And it also calls into question whether he might sort of just dominate and control everyone on the board, and therefore you can't just trust the board to be making independent judgments. So a lot of people thought that in that Solar City case, we would learn answers to whether Elon Musk was a controller or not. But the judge in that case, Vice Chancellor Slights, who has since left the bench, he crafted kind of an interesting opinion that essentially was able to dodge that. He said, I'm just going to pretend like Elon Musk is a controller, but I'm still now going to conclude that the way that they did this Solar City deal 
satisfied even the heightened requirements that I would otherwise impose on a controller. And by doing that, he basically said, look, I'm subjecting Elon Musk, at least for argument's sake, to the most rigorous test that we have in Delaware, and he passes. And therefore, I don't have to decide whether he's a controller or not, because he would win even if he were a controller. Now, that left open this question that that survives to this case about, well, what is his status? Does he own enough stock that he can pretty much, you know, influence or has a good chance of influencing the entirety of the board, and therefore, in this case, is going to have to be put under much more of a microscope, and maybe the board's judgment about this compensation package shouldn't be trusted as much. And so there will be kind of an interesting question about whether Chancellor McCormick in this case, you know, pursues the same strategy as Vice Chancellor Slight, um, deciding not to decide whether he's a controlling stockholder and saying, assuming that he is, this still is okay under Delaware law. Now, if in in her opinion, oh boy, whether he's a controller or not really matters for the outcome of this case, because if he is a controlling stockholder, then he hasn't met his burden to defend this thing. But if he's not a controlling stockholder, he gets a lot more deference. If she decides that that's the case, she's going to have to make a call on whether having 21, 22% of the stock of Tesla is enough to, to make him a controlling shareholder. I think a lot of us that teach in this area are sort of hoping that we'll hear something along those lines, but it's not clear to me which way it goes because Tesla did put up, you know, I think some you know pretty flashy testimony about, you know, the idea that this was the type of compensation package that's like a lottery ticket and this lottery ticket just happened to pay off, but there are all kinds of scenarios in which it might not. If it's just a regular CEO, there's no question about controlling stock. Are there parameters that judges use to determine whether a CEO's pay is fair or not? Yeah, there are. There are a couple things that are at issue here. So one is, even if it's just the CEO, the CEO still on a, on a director by director basis may have, you know, extra pull and extra influence. And that's something that you have to be mindful of when setting compensation. But to the extent that there are directors who are sufficiently independent of Mr. Musk, that they can exercise their own judgment. And if he's just an ordinary CEO, then kind of the presumption goes in that direction. Then their disinterested assessment of the propriety of this compensation package, and then their vote amongst the disinterested directors to permit it, gets a lot of deference under Delaware law. That in order to challenge that, it basically is protected by something known as the business judgment rule, which isn't quite a conclusion that Tesla's going to win this case. But it's you know pretty close to that. It's basically saying, boy, you better be able to provide us evidence that these directors, even though they weren't influenced or dominated or controlled by Mr. Musk, they basically were just phoning it in and they didn't really care about the welfare of Tesla or Tesla's stockholders. And, you know, that's a hard boundary to get over. It was famously tested almost a quarter century ago involving the then CEO of Disney, Michael Ovitz, who was let go and handed $160 million on his way out the door, and stockholders challenged it. But because the board of directors and the compensation committee was deemed to be sufficiently independent of him, the court basically said, yeah, this doesn't rise to that level of them just basically being indifferent about the value to Disney. And there was a rationale for what they did. And so the stockholders lost in that case. And so that Disney case almost certainly will rear its head if that's the nature of the bottom line here. And and that Musk is found to be, by Chancellor McCormick, just 
an ordinary CEO and not a controlling stockholder. Coming up next, the legal fallout from Musk's purchase of Twitter. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I've been talking to Professor Eric Talley of Columbia Law School about how Elon Musk's leadership at Twitter and Tesla is the subject of three major face-offs coming up in the Delaware Court of Chancery in October. Now, let's talk about there's legal fallout from Musk buying Twitter, which he's for some reason renamed X, which everyone now describes as formerly Twitter. There are numerous lawsuits over whether X owes millions to former employees, vendors, and landlords, including whether more than $1.6 million in legal fees are owed to Twitter's ex-CEO. Well, you know, when uh, Musk took over Twitter, but before we renamed it X, there was a big house cleaning. And the then sitting uh, CEO and pretty much most of the senior management and a lot of the mid-level management was just shown the door. And uh, there are allegations out there that they were shown the door in a way that was violative of their contract rights to have, you know, effectively golden parachute. You know, if there's a you know change of ownership, that all their you know, options would vest and so forth. And, and Twitter basically stiffed them on those payments. That has given rise to a lot of different lawsuits. Um, Each of them is probably going to be a little bit different in nature. And typically, you actually don't see this after uh, an acquisition that, you know, usually that's, you know, part of the assumption is, you know, there are these contract rights that I'm not going to be able to avoid paying. Twitter seems to have been a little bit more or the new Twitter seems to have been a little bit more litigious about about this and trying to fight the contractual rights, you know, many of which are available on the SEC's website. They look pretty typical and at least on first blush uh, just based on the terms of those deals, there's nothing like kind of weird or exotic or sketchy about them. So, you know, my guess is Twitter is going to try to make an, an argument that for some reason there was misconduct by these employees before they were um, they were released. And therefore, when Twitter and, and Mr. Musk basically showed them the door, he did so because he had cause to fire them. Unclear whether that is true or not, but that's the defense that Twitter is going to be putting forward because usually these, these contracts say, look, I'm going to get this payment unless I am terminated for cause or something along those lines or um, some other type of misbehavior. So that's almost certainly going to be the legal strategy that Twitter takes on. But, you know, in some ways, that's not a you know, a single argument that you can make for every one of these folks. Every single one of them, you kind of have to say, oh, and then here's why this person was fired for cause, and here's why this other person was fired for cause. So it is a big and somewhat of an uphill legal battle to do that. You know, it's it's kind of an interesting question about whether that uphill battle is in part kind of predicated against a ticking clock of trying to understand just how much money Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it has it in the bank to operate right now, given that it is now a heavily indebted company and is having to pay significant you know, interest rate payments. And so maybe if it's kind of thinking, gosh, we may be entering a zone of insolvency sometime soon, this you know, possibly could just a strategy to 
uh, put off having to pay these former employees until the whole company is in Chapter 11 and they're restructuring every creditor's sorts of claim. So there's also a settlement over a lawsuit brought by a pension fund over executive compensation packages at Tesla. There's going to be an October 13th hearing on that settlement? That one is a little bit different because that one, I think, has to do with director compensation at Tesla and not Musk's compensation, if I am not mistaken. And so yeah. it's kind of based on different facts. Because it's settled, we don't exactly know how things are, are, are going to come out, usually with these settlements that both sides sort of say, we think we had a strong case, but there are, of course, risks that we might lose, and therefore we think this is a reasonable settlement amount. And so uh, my guess is those things typically are going to um, end up getting signed off on. But, you know, in, in recent months, famously, the Delaware Chancery Court has become an entertaining, if somewhat frenetic, landscape on which people suddenly show up and object to settlement, such as in the AMC settlement last month in front of Vice Chancellor Zern. So my guess is this ends up sort of failing through. A successful settlement of a case is usually seen by all sides as, you know, kind of a victory, including the judges who now don't have to adjudicate the case. But, you know, you never know um, whether an objector is going to have some traction. There are always a few people who are kind of thinking this should have been a more lucrative settlement or a less lucrative settlement. But my guess is it ends up being signed off. What caught my eye is that attorneys for the pension fund are looking for $230 million in legal fees, which adds up to more than $10,000 an hour. Yes. Seriously. That's another job that we missed out on, June. So this is an often controversial but also a little bit complicated thing about how our plaintiff attorneys compensated. There definitely is a fairly large cottage industry of plaintiff attorneys who say, okay, let's go after this particular violation. We'll find a stockholder who can be our representative stockholder, and then we're going to move forward with a class action or a derivative action and try to get a settlement. But there's kind of a parallel to the venture capital industry, where I think uh, you know the famous adage that nine out of 10 you know, VC-backed companies basically just go sideways or fail, right? You don't make any money off of them. You only make money off of the one in 10 that succeeds. And there's something that's kind of similar about these lawsuits, that when you take on any one of these lawsuits, you are effectively bearing risk to take it on. The overwhelming majority of the time, you're not going to get that much out of it. If anything, if the case gets dismissed, you have spent however much you spent as a plaintiff's firm getting absolutely nothing. And so the theory in a lot of these cases is that you know, there will be some sort of a percentage of the overall settlement that the plaintiff's attorneys are going to get. That can't be exorbitant, but the judges generally do try to take account of the fact that there are significant costs in bringing these cases and there are a lot of risks associated with them. And so, you know, if you just look ex post and in hindsight at this one settlement, it's like, oh, what attorney makes $10,000 an hour? Well, the fact of the matter is, if there were nine other cases that had just as much effort going into them and they all ended up with nothing, then that looks more like $1,000 an hour, right? That a defense side attorney might easily be billing, regardless regardless of whether the case wins or loses and therefore doesn't even actually have any risk there. So when you sort of look at the numbers in isolation, they're they're eye-popping. They're definitely eye-popping. When you back it out and sort of say, well, you know, on some level, while while we're on the topic of lottery tickets, taking these cases from the plaintiff's side is a little bit of a lottery ticket as well. That may give a little bit more explanation to it. Do the courts and the parties always get it right? 
It's not clear, right? The fact of the matter is that, you know, the attorneys, they, they are not doing this because they are essentially the newest incarnation of Mother Teresa running around, right? <laughs> they are trying to make a living, too. You know, plaintiff attorneys are people, too, and they've got to make a living. And so they're going to, you know, try to claim as much as they think they can they can feasibly claim from the transaction. One of the things that's a little bit dangerous about these stockholder litigation cases is that you got the defendants that would like to settle, you got the plaintiff's attorney that would like to settle, uh, you got one plaintiff that's kind of nominally being represented by the plaintiff, maybe backed by a by an entire class of plaintiffs, but they're usually um, usually silent in the background. So are the defense attorneys and plaintiffs attorneys basically sort of ushering through a settlement that doesn't give a lot of value to the real harmed parties in the case? That's a big danger, and we see a fairly significant attorney compensation amount that better be matched by, you know, a significant benefit that is given to the company and to the stockholders. Here, there is an agreement that, you know, some of this compensation is going to be given back. I guess there's another question that sits in the background, though, is that is that actually going to be paid by an insurance company or, you know, are there some hidden indemnification rights? And I think in some cases that's been ruled out, but I'm not sure it's been completely ruled out across all corners here. So we'll have to keep our eye on the Delaware Chancery Court next month. Thanks so much, Eric. That's Professor Eric Talley of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.